Hello, welcome to Cubs PS Plus, a Northside numbers game, a weekly podcast that dives headfirst into the analysis of hot topics driving Chicago Cubs baseball. I'm your host, Mike Waller, a lifelong Cub fan, full-time baseball stat nerd, and sometime youth baseball coach. Thanks for being here today. I know you have a lot of choices. You can find me on Twitter or X, Instagram, TikTok, Threads, Blue Sky, and YouTube, all at Cubs PS Plus, a spin on the baseball metric OPS Plus. If you can, please take a second and drop a rating or review on Apple, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. If you've done that, thank you so much. Maybe you can share an episode with a friend. Just a few seconds can help me get better and help other Cub fans find the show. You can also help support the Cubs PS Plus podcast by going to cubspsplus.patreon.com. There are four support tiers that come with added perks, and your support will help me keep this podcast ad-free. Welcome into episode 53, the Rich Hill episode of this podcast. Rich Hill, who's still getting hitters out in the major leagues after all this time, wore number 53 with the Cubs from 2005 to 2008. Last week, I had a really enjoyable conversation with CHGO's Brendan Miller. If you missed it, please go check it out. The baseball since then has largely been not so enjoyable. The Cubs have really been struggling lately, sometimes hitting and not pitching, sometimes pitching and not hitting. Uh, It's been a bit of a mess. The Cubs have gone from a four-game lead in the second wild card to a tie for the third wild card spot with a team that owns the tie break against the Cubs. It's been a full team effort. It's been some hitting, some pitching, some bullpen, kind of everything's been a problem at times. Let's break it down. Are you ready? Maybe you're not, but let's do it anyway. I'm ready. Here we go. As if any of us need proof, being a Cubs fan is never easy. How are you doing with the games this past week? How are you doing with the season in general? Um, it's been it's been a wild ride. I mean, looking back, we got off to a decent start in April, 14-13 April. Um, then the team kind of fell apart in May, 10 and 18 May, kind of struggled into early June and kind of hit rock bottom forget the date, I think it was June 8th against the Angels where they, you know, the Angels swept the Cubs. That's where the Cubs fell 10 games behind or 10 games under 500. And they were kind of a mess. Since then, they've played a lot better baseball. And at times they have been very, very hot and they sustained for a good six to eight weeks. They sustained basically a 95 to 100 win pace. Um, I think probably if you get us right down to our core belief and core understanding, I think we would probably all agree that this team has assembled, especially to start the year and as they progress through the year, it's not a 100-win team. I mean, this team, while they certainly took a series from the Braves and any team is capable capable of competing with any other on a given day, as evidenced by even the Oakland A's, the worst team in baseball, taking a series from the Braves earlier this season, nobody would put this Cub roster um, on par with the Atlanta Braves roster or the Dodgers roster or any of the teams that are at the top of the standings. But if you look across teams at the top of the standings, the Cubs won the season series with Baltimore. They won the season series with Tampa. They're ahead in the season series against Atlanta. They beat Texas. They beat Seattle. Um, The Cubs have held their own against really good teams. But then we get into what we've seen since then. You know, right before I talked to Brendan Miller last week, the Cubs lost two out of three in Colorado. Colorado is not a good baseball team. I know they're they're playing spoiler right now. Um, They did some damage to San Francisco after the Cubs left town, but they're going to play Arizona. Now Arizona, I consider a peer team. I personally thought going into the two series with Arizona that the Cubs had a better roster, Um, but the Diamondbacks are a legitimately good team. The Cubs have been about even with them for a while. 
So I mean, that's a pure team, and the Cubs got smoked. I mean, they lost three out of four at home and got swept on the road. So um, right now, there's no question Arizona's playing better baseball. Then they come home, and you think, all right, well, you know, the, the Cubs still came home from Arizona in playoff position, and they've had three with the Pirates at home, going into three with the Rockies at home before you go to Atlanta and Milwaukee to finish the season. And so, you know, it's very easy to think that this is a time to go get fat on Pittsburgh and, and the Rockies. And the Cubs didn't do that. They won the first game against Pittsburgh and then lost the last two. And the Cubs have done this in a lot of different ways throughout the year. There have been times where the you know early in the season, the starting pitching was really, really good, led by Stroman and Steele. Um, Drew Smiley got off to an outstanding start, even though uh, Jameson Tyone got off to a horrendous start. But the Cubs won a lot of close games at that point. And the games they lost, where they got in that swoon in May, um, they weren't getting a lot of offense. They weren't scoring a lot of runs. And they were in these 2-1, to 3-2, to 2, 1 to nothing games where the bullpen, which was unproven, and the, the Cubs have shown they can build a bullpen, and they built a bullpen this year. But when you're building it from sort of assorted parts, right? I mean, um, last year, key members of the bullpen were, you know, Keegan Thompson and Brandon Hughes. And the Cubs never really had them. I mean, they were both in the bullpen to start the year, but Keegan wasn't sharp. Um, Hughes wasn't either, but Hughes was also injured and kind of on and off the injury list for a while until he had the knee surgery. So they were never right. So there's two pieces you thought would just be there. Um, then you're bringing in Michael Fulmer, who got off to a bit of a slow start. Julian Merriweather has been excellent, um, but you know he got lit up in two of his first three outings. So right out of the gate, there was a lack of confidence, maybe a lack of trust, and, and that theme is going to hold here as, as we talk through some of these topics today. I think, so in the early season, they had starting pitching, but struggled with the bullpen, struggled on the offense. And you can go back and look through. We, we I've talked about it. Um, everybody on Twitter has talked about it. You go back to May and you see a lot of at-bats from guys who are no longer on the team. Um, most notably, probably, Eric Hosmer and Trey Mancini. Um, I think I've been a little critical of the moves. I like them both individually and thought they could both contribute to a kind of emerging Cubs team, potentially, but I didn't think it ever made sense to sign both of them together. You had Matt Mervis, who was the Cubs minor league player of the year last year, sensation coming up through three levels of the minors. And we saw, you know, Mervis got about 100 play appearances when he was up in, in May into June. And that helped. I mean, we, we saw some things. I think by the time he got sent back down, he was showing some good at-bats. He was getting a lot of hard contact. Um, frankly, I think he was hitting, hitting into a little bit of uh, hitting into a bit of bad luck. Um, but the numbers overall weren't there because young players, a lot of times, need go through growing pains. Well, most of them go through growing pains unless you're one of those guys that's a kind of a superstar from the jump. You either come up and you, you know, get off to a great start and then pitchers kind of figure you out, get a book on you and you have to adjust or you struggle to start and you have to adjust to major league pitching. Um, so that's what we saw from Matt Mervis. That's what we're seeing from Pete Crow Armstrong right now. But there were still too many at-bats from Trey Mancini and Eric Hosmer Luis Torrens didn't last long, Edwin Rios, on and on and on. And while I've been very pro Miles Mastroboni, and I'll talk more about him later because he's he's playing really well right now, it never made sense to leave Arizona while Say is on the injured list 
with two outfielders, hoping that you can just have Miles Mastroboni be the right fielder. It wasn't a fair position for him. He was a rookie with, I think, a whopping 17 plate appearances when he came over to the Cubs. Um, Major League plate appearances. And it just set everything off on the wrong foot. So I think from the start we've had, and I'm going to talk about David Ross and uh, Jed Hoyer in the front office uh, specifically later. Um, I think you're going to see an interplay between managerial decisions, organizational decisions, and front office decisions. I think um, everything the Cubs have done this year, whether it's on the field, whether it's in the clubhouse, whether it's philosophical across the organization, I think it's really been a team effort. I think there are aspects of every part of the game that have gone well. I think there are aspects of every part of the game that have failed. And so what we're left with is we're left with this blur of a season that started okay, then went very badly, then went really well for a while, um, then went really, really well. And now all of a sudden at crunch time, it feels like a collapse. Now, I'm not going to call it a collapse yet because, well, we're all mad. We're all frustrated. Um, The Cubs have not been eliminated from the playoffs yet. And honestly, for all the frustration about the way the Cubs have played, if this were a Cincinnati Reds podcast or an Arizona Diamondbacks podcast before the Cubs and Diamondbacks played, if this was a Giants podcast or a Marlins podcast, it'd be largely the same tone. Like none of all those teams are competing for those last couple spots. I think um, Arizona probably has the leg up right now, but you know, with with nine, 10 games to go, there are no guarantees there either. Um, When, none of those teams really have stepped up and done what they have to do to take control of the race. So while the Cubs are scuffling right now and the Cubs have nine games left, three against the Rockies, three against the Braves and three against the Brewers, things feel bleak and maybe they are bleak. Um, I've said all along, you know, what I asked for at the beginning of the season was to play meaningful baseball in September and they are playing meaningful baseball in September and they will be playing meaningful baseball into the last week of the season. Um, for a transition year, for a year where I didn't think the roster was quite where it needed to be, I'm not exactly going to say I'm happy with it because as, as much as we, as much as I constantly say that I try not to move the goalposts, sometimes the goalposts move themselves. Um, we started this year and I, I, I predicted the Cubs to have about 83 wins. We'll see how that comes out. I thought there was upside if they added to the deadline. I thought there was downside if they wound up selling at the deadline. Um, but I thought they were 83, you know, give or take two games, so probably like 81 to 85 level talent if some things broke right. And the Cubs have had, again, the, the ups and downs are the theme of the season. Some things absolutely did not break right. Trey Mancini never hit. Eric Hosmer never hit. There have been um, guys that have had disappointing seasons this year, and they're both hitters and pitchers. Um, Jamison Tyone, they signed him. He was their big pitching acquisition last offseason, and outside of about a maybe a six-start stretch in June and July, he's really struggled. Um, <clears throat> Brennan gave a good breakdown last week. I think he and I are both confident that Tyone can get this back and be productive next year and, and maybe even fully live up to the deal he signed. But right now, he's not getting it done. But we've seen we've also seen surprises. We've seen uh, until you know very recently, and we'll, we'll talk about kind of this team may be fading down the stretch. We've seen Justin Steele emerge as most of the season as a legitimate Cy Young contender. We saw Marcus Stroman throw, throw the first half of the season as 
a guy who arguably should start the All-Star game. We've seen Cody Bellinger completely revive his career. Um, so we've seen a lot of positive things, but kind of never at once, never quite enough. Um, and when you look down this roster, it wasn't deep enough from the start. And I think we could all argue that maybe it could have been made deeper. Um, so let's go ahead and talk about, um, let's jump into David Ross because David Ross is going to lead me into my next topic anyway. Um, I know there's a lot of sentiment on Twitter that Ross should be fired. My position currently is I'm not in favor of firing anybody because the Cubs have not missed the postseason. If the, if the Cubs make the postseason, I don't see any reason to justify firing a manager, whether you like what he does or not, or the front office or people in the front office. Um, in a season where most prognosticators, all fan graphs, a lot of the projection systems, Pakoda, you know, Zips, all these things had the Cubs largely pro- projected for 75 to 80 wins. Most of them were right around 77, 78. So this was not a roster that people saw as hugely talented or some kind of lock to compete for the division of the playoffs. Things change. I get it. Once the Cubs get, you know, four games up for the second wild card and they've got Fangraph's playoff odds of 92 to 94%, it kind of feels like a sure thing. So if it doesn't happen, I understand the mentality that that's a failure, that's a collapse, that they blew something. Um, And I agree with it. But when it comes down to evaluating what has gone on this season, I've never been someone who, oh, the season went poorly, somebody has to be fired. Sometimes somebody does have to be fired, but I think that's in the breakdown of how did it go wrong? Why did it go wrong? Um, who took the steps? Is the clubhouse toxic? Is there a poison atmosphere? Is it, Did the manager lose control of the team? Did the front office completely botch the offseason? And I look across, and we'll, we'll focus on David Ross right now. Um, he's a guy who the Cubs hired before the 2020 season. So his debut as a manager, first-time manager, first season he gets is COVID. I mean, that's a just a freaking nightmare. The you have spring training, it shuts down. You come back for a little ramp up. You got a short 60 game season. It was chaos. There are no fans. Um, so I don't know. Everybody kind of tosses that out. And I agree with that. Like that's a almost effectively a non season. You had no real minor leagues. So you didn't have that to tap into either. Just so much was going on. Then the 2021 season um, happened and it, you know, it was fine. It was good for a while. That was the. That was the end of the run, and we'll talk more about Jed's role there, the, the end of the run of the last championship era. So that was the year they traded off Hugh Darvish, and then at the deadline they traded off Chris Bryant, Anthony Rizzo, Javi Baez, a bunch of relievers, and that was kind of the the end of that old core. And Ross, you know, is should be evaluated on his performance that year. I mean, the the season started pretty well. It looked like the Cubs might be able to make a run division, make the playoffs. Then they had a it was 11 game losing streak and they just basically tanked going into the trade deadline. And so it was sad. We all hated seeing those guys go. And I think it all started, everything got off on the wrong foot because coming out of COVID, um, I don't talk about Tom Ricketts much. For the most part, the Ricketts, own the team, they hire the baseball people, and for the most part, they let the baseball people do their job. 
the one time that really was not the case was post COVID because of, well, I mean, their justification was that because of all the investments they had made in, um, renovating the stadium and, and buying up properties around the stadium in Wrigleyville that, you know, a season with no, no revenue because there were no, there were no fans. There was a short season. TV revenues were way down that, you know, they were probably not struggling to pay bills, but in terms of amounts coming due versus expected revenues, like that was where we got the whole, and I'll say it's stupid, the whole biblical losses comment. Um, I don't doubt that they lost a lot of money, um, but this is an entertainment venue and you look across all of entertainment, like NFL teams, NBA teams, baseball teams, college sports, Hollywood, you know, entertainment across the board, it was a lot harder to host events. It was harder to, um, you know, film on site, you know, so everything was harder and it was different and it was frankly not a good time for any of us. But then coming out of that, um, you know, because of that, the Cubs were in a position where, and I've talked about it before on this pod, but the core players, the, the you know, Rizzo was locked up to a long-term deal, but Chris Bryant, Javier Baez, Kyle Schwarber, Wilson Contreras, Ian Happ, all those guys started to hit arbitration years. And as they hit arbitration years, the Cubs didn't extend any of them. I have a whole, whole episode of the, about this from last fall, kind of comparing what the Cubs did during that period to what the Braves have done during this period in terms of locking up young players and, and getting them, you know, set in. And... So those guys were getting more expensive. And so that core of player, you know, KB, Javi, Contreras, uh, had some pitchers, I think, uh, Kyle Hendricks, until he signed his long deal. Those guys were taking up more and more of the payroll every single year. But the payroll was getting bigger without adding more talent. And because they were unable to get deals done, they didn't trade anybody. They really just kept trying to run it back. Um, They kept trying to run it back. And it... Ultimately, it didn't work, but the failure there was just the, they they never established the transition. They never had that next wave. They traded off their next wave because they couldn't develop pitching. So guys like Eloy Jimenez and Glaber Torres, um, Dylan Cease, Isaac Paredes, Jamer Candelario, like all these guys got traded away chasing down pitching. And so they never had that next wave of cheap talent and they had to keep filling holes by buying pitching. Even when they, in a year where they didn't go for big pitching, they had somebody like Cole Hamels who they had traded for the previous year and wound up, you know, picking up a $20 million option because they just didn't have anybody else coming up. So when they hit the biblical losses point, the Cubs had all this elevated payroll from the guys getting bigger and bigger arbitration rates that they deserve. They, I mean, they played, they earned the rates and, you know, they earned those salaries and that's how baseball works. But the only way that, you know, Tom Ricketts told Jed he could fill the roster was basically, you know, clear some space or this is what you got. And so his way of clearing space was trading you Darvish, which um, is a move that can't say is all that popular among Cub fans. Certainly was not popular with me. Um, I do like the return of some of the guys like Owen Casey is really exciting. He's one of the Cubs top prospects now, but honestly, if I had to go back and do all over again, we wouldn't have Owen Casey. We'd have Hugh Darvish still on the mound. But so that feeds into the, 
decrease in talent. So that that was a shot. That was that team of 2021. The Cubs were going to try to run it back one more time and see what they could do with those guys before either they left in free agency or if things didn't go well, they get traded at the deadline. So right to start the offseason, your ace is gone. Replace him with Zach Davies, who never just didn't pitch that well with the Cubs. So it was all the more maddening when Zach Davies is beating us in Arizona. But so, you know, Ross gets credit and blame. The team got off to a good start. The team didn't have a good middle of the season, and so they traded off. And that's, you know, Ross will certainly bear some responsibility. We go to last year. That team never competed. I don't think it was – I mean, regardless of what they say, and I did talk about it last year. I started my podcast midseason, so I didn't have anything from the preseason. I thought last year had a chance if, like, everything broke right that maybe they could flirt with a wild card. But, like, nothing went right. Like, the whole first half of the season – Stroman, Smiley, Miley, Hendricks, like they're all hurt. Um, so it all just went to crap quickly. So they were out of it by probably by the end of April, actually. So last year was just all about going through the guys that they had, who were dudes, who aren't, who can fill this role, who can fill that role. So even the in-game decisions, I didn't really feel like I could evaluate Ross. It was so very clear, we're going to try this guy as a starting pitcher. We're going to try this guy as a leadoff hitter. Um, we're going to put this reliever into a bunch of different kinds of situations and see how he pitches. So while, you know, following the games and following all the commentary, like people are like, why is he going to this guy in that spot? Well, they weren't playing for anything. They were playing to evaluate players. Um, so I didn't feel coming out of last season, like I had any clear idea how Ross was as a manager. What I knew about him was over the course of a COVID season, a sell-off, and then a team that just wasn't talented nearly enough to win, he kept all those clubhouses. So when I evaluate a manager, I've said it before, I'll say it again, I think managers get too much credit and too much blame. They get too much credit, too much blame, and it's often really hard to parse out what specifically they've done well and done poorly. So if David Ross puts out a lineup and it's got like, and you're like, what the hell is that guy doing in that spot? And that guy goes three for four, drives in a couple runs, hits a bomb. Does that mean Ross was right and he made the right call, or was it a bad choice that worked out? Because baseball has both. You can make a what seems like the perfect lineup, and that's happened. Like There have been some lineups, as much as people complain about the lineups, there have been some lineups, especially over the last month, that get put out. And the initial response is, wow, good job, David Ross. This is the lineup we want to see. This is what we think is the perfect lineup. And then they go out against some mediocre starting pitcher and they've scored one run by the eighth. You know, other times it's been like, what in the world is he thinking? And they blow a team out. And it can be both things. You can have a good decision not work out. You can have a bad decision that does work out. And one thing we've seen is, again, like, I'll talk about this a little bit more here in a second, but organizationally, there are things you do that fans wind up looking at the manager, but it's really more of an organization decision. And I'm not trying to undercut David Ross's authority. David Ross, I 100% believe, sets the lineup every day. He makes decisions on, you know, who's going to play. But he does those things in conjunction with others. So he's, he's the last say. He's the one that makes the decision. 
Um, but he is on a regular basis talking to the front office about direction and strategy. He's in regular contact with his hitting coach and his pitching coach, and his bullpen catcher and all the guys to get their input. You know, Tommy Hadovy is very in tune with how his guys are feeling, who's looking good, how their pitches are going. He's in touch with the strength and conditioning coaches who have all the data on, Hey, this guy's dragging. This guy maybe needs a day off. Um, and so he brings all that information in. And to some extent, I think, especially like on the pitching side, I think Hadavi or the uh, strength and conditioning guys can say sometimes, hey, Julian Merriweather has pitched three straight games. Albert Alzali has pitched three innings in the last two days. Um, they're down tonight. And so you just got to go somewhere else. Um, but around those decisions, he's the one that makes the call. But because those other things are so influential and because modern front offices and modern baseball organizations are very collaborative, this isn't the day where, you know, Earl Weaver is just making up his lineup, putting it out there every day and flipping his middle finger to the rest of the world. You know, the the front office has a strategy. The analytics department runs all the numbers about who's hot, who's not, who matches up well with this pitcher, whose swing is on the right plane for what this pitcher throws. There are so many things that go into it that while David Ross makes the decision on the lineup, he's making it based on organizational data that's provided. So when you look at and evaluate David Ross, you may or may not like, I may or may not like what he's doing. I may not like some of the calls he makes in terms of lineups or pitching changes and all that sort of thing. But, you know, you kind of have to look at why. So if you if, if you want to fire Ross, let's, let's look at the case to fire Ross. The case to fire Ross is things are going badly right now. I need a scapegoat. That certainly happens. There are managers who are fired for exactly that reason. There are managers who are fired because they are not in tune with the front office or the overall baseball organization. That happens too. There are sometimes where... You know, even though maybe you're in lockstep, maybe you don't, it's not exactly a scapegoat situation, just like this has gone too long. We just have to make a change. Or the fourth case, and this happened to Rick Renteria after the 2014 season, somebody who you honestly believe is truly great becomes available and you need to make a move or else you're going to miss that opportunity. So Rick Renteria, I thought, did a pretty solid job in 2014. He was a young manager, seemed to have a good background. But all of a sudden, Joe Madden became available, and they became a no, kind of a no-brainer selection. And the Cubs went on to go to three straight NLCSs, and you know the rest is history. So this year, as we look at that, you know, who is available? Who is out there right now? It looks like Craig Council is going to leave Milwaukee. There's some speculation that he's going to take a year off and kind of just get away from baseball and, and do something else before deciding whether to come back. Um, he could potentially be on the table. I'm on record as um, I'm not a huge fan. I mean, he's I'm not going to say he's a bad manager because he's not, but I think he makes some, you know, interesting decisions too. <coughs> I think while he's had some overachieving teams, he's also had some teams that frankly missed opportunities. I think last year is a big one. They have three elite starters. They seem to have an elite bullpen every single year. Not a ton of offense, but they seem to somehow devil magic their way to just enough. And last year they were certainly competing for the wild card spot, and then the Cubs did them a huge solid. So as, as bad as the Cubs are playing right now, the 
Philadelphia Phillies were kind of in control of that third wild card spot. And from September 27th to September 29th, so this is the next to last series of the year, the Cubs swept the Phillies. And it really looked like the Cubs knocked the Phillies out of the playoffs and cleared the path for the Brewers to take it. But the Brewers refused to take it. You know, they kind of choked their way out of that spot and Philly made it. And we know what happened after that. Philly went all the way to the World Series. So, you know, Craig Council has his, his bugs too. I see fans talk about Joe Girardi. I think one thing that's important to remember is while sometimes there's an obvious big name that becomes available, you didn't think that guy was going to become available and it's a no-brainer. I think all these teams, really any good organization. So I, I don't work in baseball. I work in other areas and technology. And when you have a staff, you know, as, as much as you run into people and you have your professional network, like you've got ideas of people who might be good on your team. And you look for opportunities to bring those people in. So these front offices, you know, aren't just waiting to, Jed's not waiting around to say, you know what, today I feel like firing Ross and I don't have any idea what I'm going to do next. Like they have names, they have ideas. Doesn't mean they're going to work. They're going to go through interview processes. Some people may not be interested in the job, but there are a lot of, you know, if you're inside the baseball circles, these teams have probably at least a half dozen names at any given time that are potential managerial candidates in their organization, somebody else's organization um, that fans just don't know. So the, the fan speculation is hard. Fans go to the names they know, which are the the councils, the Girardis. Um, I don't even necessarily know if it makes sense um, to stay within the Cubs organization. Like, I mean, I, I could see maybe Tommy Hadovy would be a potential manager, maybe Andy Green, maybe somebody else on the bench staff. But sometimes if you fire a guy, it kind of depends on why you're firing him. If, if you want to make a change, you maybe want to go outside the organization and kind of bring in a new voice. But that takes me to the second category. Like, you know, it seems like Jed and David Ross are largely on the same page. I think the David Ross is a pretty analytics friendly manager. Um, as you know, he came, he was a player as, as this age was really emerging. So we've seen a lot of guys who played in that era who now are very involved in front offices and, and managerial roles and the, the data doesn't bother them at all. So I think if Jed were to fire David Ross, either because of fan pressure or pressure from ownership to like, this didn't go well, we need to put somebody on point as accountable. Um, I think what we'd be likely to get is probably somebody in the similar vein to Ross. Like if, if, if these are collaborative decisions and Ross is not going off on his own, um, you know, really doing his own thing, then these are organizational decisions that probably with a lot of the same inputs are going to wind up being very similar. So my biggest personal criticisms with Ross and these, there are areas where I think he can grow and as a manager still, I mean, this is only his fourth season as a manager. So I expect I would anybody in that role, you know, I'm, I've been in my current job for a little over a year, but you know, before that I'd been in the, in a very similar role for, you know, seven, eight years and you grow, you learn more, you take in new information and you make new decisions. I think where Ross can really improve and where the organization can improve is one. I think they're very almost religiously tied to handedness splits so when it's a righty on the mound, we automatically have to flip and get, um, you know, lefties in. Maybe maybe, a, maybe there's a right-hander who is on a bit of a heater, and that guy maybe sits down. You know, like an Alexander Canario comes in, has that huge game. 
He's apparently been blowing everybody away in batting practice with his just natural smooth power. But like today, Colorado starting a lefty, and he's not going to DH. Jared Young is. There's also the idea of kind of a circle of trust. And David Ross, this is something that I think has been a David Ross staple outside of maybe last year when they were just trying guys in spots. I think he, and it's natural, right? Like we, if you're at work or you need help with something, like there's probably always that friend that can help you out. And like, you're not spreading the work around. You're going to, hey, can you help me out with this project? Or, hey, I've got this really important assignment. I'm going to try to give it to my best person because I want to get it knocked out and get it done right. And that's how he manages, which is totally natural. What we're seeing, though, is, and this is where I'll, I'll flip to Hoyer in a minute, this roster was not deep enough to start the year. The bullpen struggled. Eventually, when they sort of got hot, they kind of found four guys who filled roles very well. Julia Merriweather, after the first week or so, really was lights out. He'll occasionally give up a bomb and, and maybe give up a big inning, but for the most part, he's been amazing. Mark Leiter Jr. using that split. Like he's just been the lefty killer, which was a godsend in a bullpen that had no lefties for two thirds of the year. Uh, Michael Fulmer, after a bad start, came back and was really good in the leverage role. And then Adbert Alzali really emerged as the closer. And so those four guys got them through so many games. Those guys came up so big, but they were pitching two and three times a week very consistently. And they were, um, you know, on pace all for, you know, 70 plus appearances. And then systematically, we've just started to see them break down. Um, Michael Fulmer went first. He went to the injured list, came back, had kind of an erratic outing, and now he's back on the injured list with uh, forearm stiffness. I don't know if that's – I think it's largely an overuse injury. I think um, hopefully it's nothing severe. I hope he can rest it, find a place to pitch next season, and have a good year. But you know, we've we've also seen Edward Azalei as a guy prone to – injuries in the past he's now down now he's long tossing there sounds like they're fairly optimistic maybe he could be back um, before the end of the season we'll see it'd be nice to have him back he's, he's pitched well and then even mark Leiter jr has not gone on the injured list but he has you know that split was his magic pitch i mean that was that was the lefty killer i mean i've seen him just tear up i mean freddie freeman just really good hitters he's just chewing them up with that split finger but now that he doesn't have the command of the split finger. It's it's not as sharp as it was. He's not locating it as well as he was. And he's pitched way, way more than he ever has in his career. Julian Merriweather the same. He's been he's still probably largely been the best and the most consistent, but you know, coming in last night and he got robbed on the first hitter. I mean, that was a three two count. Ball clearly in the strike zone. Um calls a ball, goes to first. But he still has to make his pitches after that. Like, I'm not going to put the whole thing on the umpire, but Blue did not do anybody any favors um, the last two. There have been a case like that each of the last two nights. It was lighter the night before and Merriweather last night. But, you know, he gives up um, gives up that walk, walks another guy, and then gives up a three-run homer. And that three-run homer was big. It was in the top of the ninth, and it took a, what, a two-run lead to a five-run lead, and the Cubs hit a... A one-run lead to a four-run lead, and the Cubs hit a two-run homer that would have walked the game off. Um, but now they're still down two, and they just didn't get enough done. And then you look across the position players, and I think Dansby Swanson looks tired. I know 
Dansby wants to be there every day. Dansby insists on being out there every day. I love that attitude in the player, but sometimes a manager has to protect the player from themselves. And when you have a roster that's not as deep, you want to put that guy out there, right? I mean, even when Dansby's not hitting, he's one of the best gloves in baseball, except over the last week and a half, he's made some defensive plays. You just don't see Dansby make very often, and he's put a few of them together in a short time span. And baseball is, you know, I've seen comments on Twitter like, well, if, if you can't play 162, condition harder. But there's there's so much more that goes into it. I mean, baseball is... It's a physical game and there's a physical grind to it because, you know, in the NFL, the action on the field itself is way more intense because you're, you know, you're banging body on body. Um, Everything's kind of a dead sprint from the go. Basketball is a little bit more of a, um, you know, you kind of want to be in shape and and have, uh, I can't believe I'm blanking on the word, but you like, you want to be able to be at your best over a range of time. And even in the NBA, they play half the number of games baseball does. Conditioning, that's the word I was looking for. Wow, I'm an idiot. Um, it's more of a conditioning and strength sport. But even in the NBA, you know, load management has become a thing that I think fans hate, but teams do it because it's kind of been shown to work. And so what baseball does, what I would like to see more out of Ross is something in between where Ross is now and where Joe Madden used to be. Joe Madden would put out like five different lineups every week. They'd get to getaway day, and all of a sudden you're starting all the backups on the same day. I get it. This roster is not as deep as the 2016 team was. You could kind of get away with it then. And so it hurts if Dansby Swanson's out of the lineup or Nico Horner's out of the lineup or Saya's out of the lineup or Bellinger. But these guys need days off. And the best way to do it, in my opinion, is to do it on a somewhat regular basis. I don't need Dansby to sit two games every week. But a couple games a month, maybe through a stretch, maybe he sits a game a week. Um, Because it does two things. It both, you know, gives that player rest. And I think I'm a big believer in giving people rest as you go so that you don't get to the point where you're exhausted and then you have to have the rest. Um, So like Dansby Swanson, you know, in an ideal world, he is playing every day right now the rest of the season. Last two, three weeks, go. It's the last... 20-game sprint, go play every day. But you do that because you've given him the rest throughout the season, so you've saved a few miles on those legs. You've saved a little bit on that arm. You've saved a little bit on his mind. I mean, this is a very mentally taxing sport. Every day you're facing, if you're a pitcher, you're facing different hitters. If you're a hitter, you're facing different pitchers. You're going through game plans. You're analyzing film. And they do that in the other sports too, Um, but the basketball season is half as long. I think is not quite as individually focused um, in terms of film review as baseball. Football has a ton of that, but you play once a week. So you build up, you know, you're doing game planning and, and review over the course of a week to play one game on typically on Sunday, maybe your Thursday or Monday. But you play that one game. Baseball, you're doing it every day and it's a grind. And I think guys just need to step away and get that break. Just know that, you know what, unless this game goes extra innings or it's a just a crazy situation, you're not going to play today. Just come in, relax, hang out in the clubhouse, get some work in, give them a chance to maybe work on something that they've been struggling with, and then go. And over the course of time, you're going to keep these people more rested. At least that, that's my philosophy. A lot of teams do it that way. I know very specifically the Atlanta Braves do not. Um, Brian Snitker's starts his kind of his best night almost every day. 
but that roster is so much deeper than the Cubs roster. So if Acuna gets, uh, he has not been cold very much this year, but you know, if, if you've got a, got a starter, if Acuna goes through a rough week, it's okay. You've got that lineup is absolutely loaded. So you've probably got three other guys who are on a heater at that point. Um, but for the Cubs this year, it's about that rest. I think they've they've burned through the bullpen. Um, I've talked about it for weeks. Like I, the Cubs needed to find other people to put in the circle of trust. They sort of did with Quas, but he sort of came in, and he was really traded for as more of a project. He's got three years of team control. They immediately gave him a new slider. So you know they're immediately trying to put him in these situations. But at the same time, you know he's. He wasn't a big addition. He wasn't like, go trade for a closer, go trade for a top setup guy. He was bullpen depth. And they really didn't get anybody else to go to the top. And honestly, at this point, because... At this point, because they've played so many games with Merriweather, with Leiter Jr., with Alzelay, and with Fulmer... If they had gone to giving Daniel Palencia a little more leverage or bringing Luke Little up earlier or, you know, using Michael Rucker a little bit differently, giving, you know, just giving other guys some of those shots, Hayden Wisniewski, you know, all those guys that have been in the pen. Maybe you lose a couple extra games in June or July and that hurts them now, but maybe they're fresher now. You know, maybe you don't have two of your top relievers on the injured list unavailable. And maybe you then expand, maybe your circle of trust is then six guys. And so you can spread that work out a little bit more and be able to have more guys at the top of their game late in the season. It may just be that the bullpen was never good enough, um, but I think that's something that David Ross can improve on next year. And at this point, I support, unless there's, unless Jed is not on the same page with him, then that's got to get fixed and either they have to have a talk and work it out or Ross has to go and they bring somebody else in. But assuming they're on the same page, which it seems like they are, then they Ross just has to get better and he should learn from this. On the Jed Hoyer side, this year, you know, I'm reminded of that, you know, the old Mr. Miyagi quote. Walk left side safe. Walk right side safe. Walk middle. Eventually you get squished like grape. I think Jed Hoyer really tried to walk both sides. He wanted to set up a roster that would give him a bunch of pieces that are available for trading at the deadline if they were not, if they didn't hit like a top level outcome. But then I also genuinely think he was trying to improve the team. Like you brought on Dansby Swanson for $177 million. You brought on Jamison Tyone on a four-year deal. They did make some moves that elevated this team and made it better. But then you get the Mancinis and you get the Hosmers and you get um, I'm disappointed in the Brad, the way the Brad Boxberger thing worked out. He's looking pretty good right now. Um, he struggled early, but I don't think he was healthy early, so he's missed most of the season. Fulmer was okay. Um, on the whole, he was good. But there's a lot of people they've brought in that uh, you know really were kind of trade bait. And as things worked out, you know, you hit on Cody Bellinger. Michael Fulmer was absolutely tradable at the deadline. Uh, Marcus Stroman, had he not been hurt, um, was somebody who would have brought back quite a haul. But he never fully committed. And so that's where that roster is not quite deep enough. They can go if everything goes right. And, and they've actually, 
you know, in, in some ways they have exceeded the, the original expectations. I know the expectations reset when they're, when there's less than a month to go and you're four games up on the second wild card. But, you know, they didn't hit on everybody. Marcus Stroman's missed half the season and was bad for a month. You know, Kyle Hendricks has been a bright shining star, but they didn't have Keegan Thompson or the Brendan Hughes they had last year in the bullpen. You know, Drew Smiley was good until he wasn't, and we had Jamison Tyone has been bad a chunk of the year, was good for a stretch. We have seen good things out of Javier Assad and Jordan Wicks. So it's all been kind of very up and down. There have been good things and bad things. And I think, you know, Brendan said it well last week. I think the Cubs are maybe not that far off where we expected them to be, but they've gotten here in a completely weird way. And so what Jed has to do next year is pick a lane. Um, and I think given where they are right now with young players starting to emerge, they need to get into that contention mode. He has to do more. Um, now on the plus side, the minor leagues are currently spitting out pitching prospects. You know, it, it talked about it here, tweeted about it, but like for eight years, maybe 10 years, the Cubs pushed up almost no pitching prospects at all to pitch meaningful innings in the major leagues. Right now, 60% of their starting staff is essentially homegrown. A big chunk of their bullpen is homegrown. And there are more arms coming that look really promising. So the Cubs can really be selective this offseason. And I'm not going to get into what they need this offseason. I think we all have our opinions on that. We'll see how the season ends. But they're going to be in a position to be a little bit more selective. And instead of having to go like they did this year and get a quantity of players, they can go pick their spots. You know, hopefully it's Cody Bellinger. Hopefully they bring in Shohei Otani. But whatever it is they do, they can target a couple big pieces and bring them in. I think they're going to spend this year. I think that was largely the, why they had the kind of trying to ride both sides approach because Jed wanted to stay under the competitive balance tax one more year. Um, Tom Ricketts has said the money was there to spend, and he's said that consistently over the last eight, ten months. Um, I believe him because he was also very clear when the money was not there to be spent. So this is a Jed strategy, and I understand it. I don't like it, but I understand it. But I think it's very clear by eating Trey Mancini's money, by eating Tucker Barnhart's money, um, by eating um, Jason Hayward's money last year, I think it's very clear that Jed is trying to get this to a position to win. So some people talk about wanting Jed Hoyer fired. Um, I'm not there yet either because the Cubs have made huge development strides. The minor league system is maybe not as ranked as highly as it was in 2014, 2015 when they had Javi and KB and, and those guys there and they had all those the superstar talent at the top. But this current farm system is absolutely deeper than that one was. And I think they are finally, they finally actually look prepared to just be churning out guys who can play at the major league level. Will they all be stars? No. They may still have to go. Some of them may turn into stars. I hope PCA is a star. Justin Steele, you know, hopefully he continues the trajectory he's been on. Um, but you're going to get a nice floor of talent. And I hate to keep talking about raising the floor, but now if you're getting competent bullpen arms coming up as rookies, second-year players, these are pre-arb guys that are making league minimum. And if you've got quality at league minimum, 
you know, you can start to decide what you're going to do over time as far as extensions, who you want to lock up through arbitration years and all that sort of thing. It also gives you trade material. So you could take some of these guys who start to emerge and maybe don't have a clear spot or maybe they're, maybe you've got two or three guys who are coming up together at the same time to play one position. You can deal from that position of strength and go bring in something else. Maybe you can take a, you know, a couple arms and a outfielder. The Cubs are deep in outfielders right now. A couple arms and an outfielder. Maybe you trade that to a team that is not a big payroll team that has a really high quality young third baseman or starting pitcher or whatever position you're looking for and go make that deal happen. Go get a potentially young star on the rise. Um, I think the Braves had just a steal of a deal to get Sean Murphy last offseason, but like that's the kind of deal I'm talking about. The A's were not going to pay Sean Murphy. Go get him. Before Brian Reynolds signed his extension in Pittsburgh. you know, the, Again, the, that's not a great fit because the Cubs didn't need outfielders, but um, <clears throat> find a guy like that. Go make a deal for him. And so I think Jed has done enough to build this organization to a point where I think there's some self-sustaining talent coming. Um, and I think if you basically cut the head off the baseball ops side, which he is the president of baseball operations, you're going to, you might replace him with somebody who's good or better. Um, but you also now potentially have disruption. And I think if, if you believe that Jed's plan is making progress, then maybe seeing it through is, is good. Um, I think next year is going to tell us a lot. If we open next off season with a veteran filled roster, that's not deep enough and looks like a half ass play, then I'm probably done with Jed Hoyer. Um, if they give David Ross a, you know, deep team with a talented roster and some rookies to get in and the rookies never play, then I'm probably done with Ross. But I think, I think I've seen enough to think that these people can grow in their, in their jobs and get better at what they do. Um, so where do we go from here? I mean, the Cubs have nine games left. They're tied for the third wild card spot. Arizona's got some tough schedule coming up. Um, actually, they don't. Uh, the Marlins have a tough schedule coming up. The Reds have some tough series. But it, it almost doesn't even matter because all these teams, Cubs especially, talked about it earlier, like they'll go lose three out of four to the Nationals and then beat the Rays and the Orioles. Um, Cubs just have to get wins. It's just time to get wins. Um, we're out of people trending to the mean. We're out, you know, this is a small sample size is left. It's nine games. Anything can happen. And I think the Cubs are continuing to play matchups. Um, I know some of the angst right now is about Pico Armstrong and Alexander Canario in particular. Um, I'm okay with the way they're handling PCA. I think when we have seen him, he has been horribly overmatched by fastballs. I mean, like non-competitive at bats level can't catch a fastball. I'm not long-term concerned about that because he's seen plenty of velo in the minors. He's come up through a ball and double a and triple a, and, and he's seen other teams top prospects and he's done well. This is, I'm sure there's some mental thing. They're probably giving him some physical stuff to work on with a swing. It looks like he's a little bit long, but if you look at PCA also, as he moves up through system, as he moves up through the system, you see a guy who, actually for only a short period of time will struggle. He will have a start with a three for 20 or a one for a 17, something like that. 
the challenge right now is the Cubs are in this, you know, 10, 12, 15 game sprint to get wins and get generate offense, trying to score runs, trying to win games to get to the end of the season to make the playoffs. And now just isn't the time where Pete can go in there every day and work through, you know, a two for 25 stretch. Um, I like what they've been doing with him. He's gotten some defensive innings. He's run some. And he's still getting some plate appearances. But, you know, as you go through those plate appearances, it's really just kind of one or two a game. And, you know, I know everybody's not in love with Mike Talkman. It seems like maybe the summer of Mike Talkman is over and maybe has been over for a month. But, like, the last couple games, he's put together some good at-bats. He's gotten some hits. He runs up a pitcher's pitch count. Um, He is not nearly as good in center field as PCA, but... Um, he plays a competent center field. I think the more maddening one is is Canario. So Canario has been up from the start when they ex- expanded rosters in September. He got one at bat kind of quickly. Well, not quickly. First few games. Um, first time back at Wrigley. And then for two, two and a half weeks, just that's it. The one plate appearance. Of course, he gets a start the other day. Has His first major league hit is an RBI double. And then he has his first major league home run, was a grand slam in the game they ran it up on Pittsburgh in the first game of the series. And then we haven't seen him since. And I think another thing that Ross probably should work on this offseason, though I think maybe his personality will just, is just who he is. Like when he said, we're going with the guys that got us here, I don't think he meant it the way a lot of the fans are taking it. I mean, he still said it. Those are the words that came out of his mouth. But. I think what he was saying is we're not going to change what we've been doing. We're going to look at the matchups. We're going to put the best guys we think are the best to match up with this pitcher. And he also said, you know, we're not here to develop talent. Well, of course he is because he's developing talent all the time. Um, That's what you do over the course of the season. You put guys in spots and you try to expand their game. Um, But you're not going to take a team that's in the playoff chase and just, okay, we called up a rookie. Rookie, it's your job now. Um, I don't think they should. They certainly haven't done that. But I think when somebody comes in and has the kind of game that Canario's had, he's got that kind of easy power and kind of that big power is something that Cubs don't have a lot of. It's kind of hard to justify that he doesn't go back in the lineup. But again, we're back to the handedness thing. Like today, the Cubs are facing a lefty for Colorado. Or sorry, facing a righty for Colorado. So they want to get the lefties in there. So they've got Talkman in the lineup, Master Boney in the lineup. And they've got Jared Young DHing, and I think it's a handedness play that is the reason why Canario isn't. I think they're giving Morell a day off, which is fair because he did not look good yesterday, even though he's he's had some good games recently. Hopefully, just one game and he's back at it tomorrow. But you know, and it's interesting when I see the lineups posted and I, I see what the commentary is, and it's funny to see how the sentiments change there, there's still some that every time master Boney is in the lineup like you can't start master Boney in a playoff race i would argue you can and clearly they're playing the matchups and i can't really say david ross was wrong the last couple of days so master Boney was in the last two days and he went and combined five for eight and scored three times you know so master Boney was not the problem he did make the one error and you know that was an issue that you know certainly led to some scoring but again like Miles Mastroboni being in the lineup is not the biggest problem. But it is interesting to see that it used to be if Mastroboni appeared. That was the one big horrendous thing wrong with the lineup. And now we've got people who 
you know, kind of see him for what he is. Like he is a guy who can put together a good at bat. He can catch a fastball. He's had a good approach to the plate. Um, and he hasn't gotten many chances, but it's also impressive that he was ready to go to go five for eight over the course of two games in a period in time where he had had three at bats since he got called up August 19th. You know, so it sounds like the clubhouse is staying together. The guys are doing their work. The guys on the bench are trying to stay ready. I think, you know, as we go into next year, there's just got to be more consistency of rest and keeping guys involved because as good as it is to see Master Boney go five for eight after not playing basically for almost a month, when you play your starters all the time and refuse to give guys days off or don't give enough days off, your bench suffers too. And suddenly you wind up in a 14 inning game and you know, you need guys to step up and get a big hit late. And if you haven't had that, it, you can do a lot of things on VR and the cage. You can face Philo off a machine. There's so many things you can do. It's not the same as game reps. And if these guys don't get game reps, it's hard for them to stay on top of their game and stay fresh. So those are some of the things I hope will get better next year. Um, right now, the Cubs have nine games left. It's three against the Rockies, three against the Braves, three against the Brewers. And the Cubs are currently, you know, they probably got to win five, maybe six of those games because they have to finish one game ahead of Miami, one game ahead of Cincinnati. Um, if they get back into competition with Arizona, they have to finish one game ahead of them. Um, I've said all along, I think 86 wins gets you the second or the third wild card. Um, there's a chance the way these teams are going that it might be more like 84, 85. If they can get to 86, I can just about, I, mean, I can't guarantee anything, but if they get to 86 wins, I think they'll be in the in the playoffs. And at this point, eight, 86 wins would be a pretty good finish. But I'm just hoping they can get to the 84, 85, and hopefully that's enough. But um, I'm going to keep watching. I'm staying invested. I hope you are too. Find some way to enjoy these. And just remember that this time last year, Cubs were winning, but they were winning games that didn't matter. And the Cubs are now playing meaningful baseball in September, and they will play meaningful baseball into the last week of the season. Probably right down the last couple days, even if they don't make the playoffs. So enjoy it for what it is. Live the highs, live the lows. Vent. Let me know what you're thinking. And Scott say, go Cubs and get through this thing. Thank you for listening today. If you like this episode, please drop a rating or a review wherever it is you get your podcasts and share the episode with a friend. Just a few seconds gives me great feedback and helps other Cub fans find the show. You can find me on Twitter or X, Instagram, TikTok, Threads, Blue Sky, and YouTube, all at Cubs PS Plus. And check out the Patreon page, CubsPSPlus.Patreon.com to help support the show and keep it ad-free. As always, the music for this podcast is from Prospect Park West by Jerry McCoy. This is Mike Waller, host of the Cubs PS Plus podcast. Every day with Cubs baseball or talking about Cubs baseball is a great day. Go Cubs!